Hope you have your Bible with you. And you can find Daniel chapter 7. And while you do, also, if you could keep your finger in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 go together. They're very closely related. In Daniel chapter 2, there was an image that Nebuchadnezzar saw of a statue, a great statue with a head of gold, arms of silver, thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And we learned those were four great world kingdoms. Well, today we're going to see those four kingdoms again from a different point of view. Years ago, I went to the city of Macau over in China. And it's a beautiful city. And you come into the city, there's giant buildings that look like they're gold. There's a lot of history in the city. You walk around and see beautiful old cathedrals. It was a Portuguese colony and still kind of has a Portuguese flavor to it. But I found as you walked up closer to the city, I've never been to Las Vegas, but they call it the Las Vegas of the East. And they say there's seven times more gambling revenue that goes through the city of Macau than Las Vegas, Nevada. So as you walk through, you see these beautiful buildings, but as you walk the streets, you see this kind of ugly underbelly. And you realize that sometimes what you see on the surface or what you think something is, is maybe not what it really is. Or the way that we see things as people, we see our kingdoms we build, and from the outside we think, this is beautiful. But as you get a closer look, you think, how does God see this thing that we've built? And sometimes I think he sees the things that we build and the things that we call beautiful and our little kingdoms, and you look underneath or you look behind it and you see, you know what, it's kind of ugly. And so today, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's vision, not from his point of view. We're going to see how God sees the kingdoms of these, this earth and ultimately what happens to these kingdoms. So in Daniel chapter 7, okay. I want to give a little bit of background. This begins a new section in the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 are a narrative section. It tells the story of Daniel's captivity, the trials that he endured, and his faithfulness. But in chapter 7 onward, begins a prophetic section of the book, where it's Daniel explaining what is going to happen in the future. And this is remarkable, because for Daniel, this was still prophetic in the future for him, but we look back at it and we see it as prophecy fulfilled from our vantage point in history. I want to keep in mind, if you were to put this in the book of Daniel, this does not take place after chapter 6. This takes place sometime between chapters 4 and 5. So if you're so inclined, you could just tear your page out. And just turn a couple pages back and insert it. No, don't do this. But no, but I want to remember that Daniel is living under the authority. He's in exile in a foreign nation. And his vision gives him wisdom to see what is God's plan for the future when things look bleak. 
And at the same time as we're reading, keep your finger in chapter 2. We may go back and forth some. So, I put a picture of Babylon then and Babylon now. And what would have been a beautiful city, probably the city of the world in Daniel's day, is now nothing more than ruins. Amazing, isn't it? Okay. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so we've already visited Belshazzar, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Interesting, this is Daniel's dream, not Nebuchadnezzar's. In chapter 2, it's Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 7 here, this is Daniel. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. In the Bible, the sea is oftentimes a picture of the nations. So it mentions the sea is the Gentile nations surrounding Israel. And the four winds oftentimes speak of God at work all around the world. The four points of the compass, God is stirring up the nations and four beasts come up out of this, out of the nations, out of the sea. And four great beasts camp out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So if you could imagine a lion having wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the man, mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke into pieces, it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another, sorry, another horn before which, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. I attempted to look up pictures of these, but I have to admit, they were all just so silly. I didn't bother putting them on my slides. But if you want something entertaining, feel free and look up the beasts. Um, I'm going to run through what these beasts are. At the end of the chapter, Daniel gives an interpretation. He spends most of his time interpreting it on this fourth beast, which is the most silly looking in the illustrations. But I think in our own mind, we can imagine what it looks like. 
but I'm going to go through and hopefully this will give us a sense of that course of history in comparison with Daniel chapter 2. And we can see what is God's plan for the future. So this first beast, it says it was like a lion with eagle's wings. Now in Daniel chapter 2, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, like you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. And Babylon here is the lion with wings. And I took this picture. It's actually from the, um, I believe it's the National Museum in London. I hope I don't get that wrong. But this is taken from Babylon. And this is the symbol of what Babylon viewed themselves. A lion with wings. Interesting, isn't it? Babylon was like the glory of the ancient world. The hanging gardens of Babylon were among the ancient wonders of the world. And as I said, in chapter 2, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. Of the commentary, when you read it, this is a pretty well-accepted interpretation. Everyone agrees this is the kingdom of Babylon. The second beast says it's a bear that was raised up on one side. As if like one side was larger than the other. And in its mouth, there's three ribs. Historians believe this is the Medo-Persian Empire, which followed the Babylonian Empire. And if you notice, Babylon ended in 538 BC. And this is the story of the handwriting on the wall. As the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon in 538 BC, they were known for their vast military might. If you look up the size of the Persian army, the Persians themselves claimed to have 2 million men in their army. So even by modern standards, that's a tremendous army. And it's likeness of like a bear. If you could imagine an army of 2 million, and modern historians say, mm, perhaps they were exaggerating, some historians put it more like 500,000, which I think, okay, if that's the low estimate, 500,000 men moving across the ancient world, lumbering like a bear across the ancient world and just devouring kingdoms and nations that were before them. In chapter 2 of Daniel, this would have been the arms of silver. They say the bear was likely um, lopsided because the Persian army was so much larger than the Medes. So like one side would have been raised up more than the other. But they are characterized just by their power, their slowness, their devouring. The three ribs, it suggests, are three conquests prior to the Babylonians. So as the Persians conquered Three nations came before Babylon, and finally Babylon was also consumed by the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast, like a leopard, with wings, with four heads, characterized by speed and agility. This was the empire of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Alexander's army was known for its speed for the quickness with which they can move, they were not known for being a large army, but rather just for their ability to move fast and to cover vast distances in a way that a larger army could not. 
Alexander conquered what was of the known world in a matter of 10 years. So the lion or the um, leopard, the four heads, Alexander dies having no more land to conquer. And the story goes, Alexander just wept because he had nowhere else to go. And he dies. And he leaves his kingdom to four generals. Just as this leopard has four heads, Alexander leads his kingdom to four generals and the fourth beast is described as being terrifying, dreadful, strong. It says it has iron teeth. This is the Roman Empire that takes over the Greeks. Out of it, it says, has ten horns. One little horn. So I believe it's the Roman Empire. And just the nature of the Roman Empire, as they consumed, it was like nothing else the world had ever seen. The way it like, embraced and enveloped other cultures, brought them into their own, it was like nothing the world had ever seen. So it's characterized as having iron teeth, as treading other nations under its feet. And in the picture from Daniel chapter 2, this is the legs of iron. And at the end is the feet mixed with iron, mixed with clay, and these ten kings, as we're going to find out, that are all part of the empire. Now, in preparing for this, I listened to a message I found on YouTube from a Calvary Chapel pastor but it was posted from the year 1988, if you could imagine. And the pastor, he was talking about how in 1988, the European nations who are in the shadow of the old Roman Empire, they were discussing a union or a unity, which had not happened yet. And he's saying, like, would it even be possible really for this unthinkable thing that the European nations would even consider joining, like joining governments, like releasing their own autonomy of currency that you could possibly, could you ever have like one currency across Europe? And I thought if you only could know where things have landed. And I remember, I don't remember the year, but it seemed like it was, 1999, 2000 there. By Doomer seeing the headline in the newspaper saying that Europe was forming a union. I thought, oh boy, like, is this kind of the things of prophecy coming together like we see here in Daniel? And I know a lot of people at that time were worried, like, is this it? Like, is this the Roman Empire being revived? Is this the shadow, like a nation's coming together to form a confederacy against the Most High? I mean, here we are, we're 2023. And I guess my word for us is, be patient. We'll see. We'll see what God does. I think in these matters of prophecy, perhaps we find more clarity looking back than we find looking forward. I think we all enjoy like thinking we know what's going to happen next. Like we have a crystal ball, as it were. But I think, if anything, it gives us confidence to look back and see that God has a hand in history. 
and he's controlling things. And we need to be content to rest in that God has a plan. And is there a confederacy in Europe? I mean, certainly there is a European Union today. Do they have a single currency? They certainly do. Is there a unified European passport? You can travel among nations freely. Yeah, we're moving in this direction. And it should interest us. I don't think we should be blind to it. But in all of it, I think we need to trust the Lord that he is controlling things. And he is in control. After this, we have this amazing vision. So we see the nations of the earth coming out of the sea. The nations rise, they fall. And at a point where Daniel should be very concerned, like watching these things, he says he looked. He paused and he turned his eyes and he looked. And it made me just think about, you know, John chapter 3, where he says, you know, behold, behold the Lamb of God. Like, look. And Daniel did. He turned his eyes and he looked. And it says, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Does your mind turn to Revelation with me? As I'm sitting here reading this, I thought, this sounds like the thrones in Revelation. His hair like pure wool, the fiery flames. This is the vision we have of Christ returning in Revelation. And I don't wonder if there's an echo here. It makes me think about God's wisdom, his purity, his power to deal with the nations of the earth. And as we see what looks like injustice all around us, and we ask the question, who, who can set this world straight? Well, here's our vision. It's the Ancient of Days, sitting in judgment before the throne, the books being opened, Sets a picture of Christ's judgment. And I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So it reminds me, um, you guys know I teach middle school. And I think of this vision of justice and a courtroom scene. And we come back to the little horn who has this one last thing to say. And I think there's sometimes... The kiddos, they just have like one little thing to say. And I'm like, can you just sit down and just say, like, okay. Like, you don't need to say anything. And yet, you always have one last little thing. And here is this little horn. This little one who has, I just want to say one more thing. No, you don't need to. You just need to be quiet now. But he doesn't. And I looked then because a sound of great words the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, 
Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There we go. And behold, with the clouds of heaven he came so the him one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So an interesting thing, uh, Son of Man, we're going to see, is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And isn't it interesting the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days? So already we have these two divine figures. Is this a little peek into some New Testament teaching on the nature of God? That there is one God who exists in three persons. Now, we don't see the Holy Spirit here, per se. But it certainly does give a little glimpse and a peeking into some New Testament teaching. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We see the Son of Man. This phrase is very interesting. At different points, it's used in different ways. Sometimes it's used in the Old Testament. As I understand, especially in Ezekiel, Son of Man just means a person. But sometimes it means someone who has a divine title. And so occasionally you have to use the context and figure out, is this a divine title? Or is this just saying, a, like, one of us, son of man, like people? But when you look at the context here, coming with the clouds, would any of you say to any person, like, coming with the clouds? No. This clearly is a divine, divine being. Coming before the Ancient of Days, the one who approaches God himself. Clearly, this is divine. Given dominion. This is divine. And so we have to understand, when Jesus says to the high priests, and he's on trial, he says, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, do you think they knew what he was talking about? I mean, do you think the ref, they knew the reference he was trying to make? I mean, they knew it. And it says they ripped their clothes. Did Jesus himself know who he claimed to be? When he says the son of man, referring to himself, he was talking about the prophecy of Daniel. He's saying this is me. And isn't that amazing that the one who claims to be the Son of Man, the one who claims to have glory and a kingdom and dominion, the one who claims that nations, people's nations, languages, they're going to serve him, this one, and yet here he is standing in a court, being judged, really standing in our place, and he is saying, this is who I am. 
And yet I'm coming into this place in humility. He says, but one day you're going to see me like this. You're going to see me the way Daniel saw the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days. The one who's going to execute justice righteously. When we see the humility of Christ, knowing who he is, it should bring our hearts out in affection for him to realize the one who is the most high came down to the lowest place for our sake. It should bring out our hearts in affection and love toward him. And to see that the one who all nations will serve, says he came to serve. It's an amazing comparison, like who God is, and yet who he became for our sake. And to see that his nation, his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And I'm just amazed throughout Daniel's, we see these prophecies about nations that rise and fall. And even since this time, that nations have risen Nations have fallen, kingdoms have come, kingdoms have gone. And even in the short span of our own nation, you know, we kind of feel like, will our nation go on indefinitely? We perhaps have among the shortest histories of nations on the earth. And in some ways, we're even seeing the decline of our own nation. So nations come and fall, but the kingdom of the Lord is an everlasting kingdom, will never be destroyed Verse 15, the interpretation. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head, they alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And we looked at what these four kingdoms are. But Daniel's really interested in this fourth kingdom. He said, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with his teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Interesting, there's going to be these ten ten kings. And whether this is prophetically in the future or prophetically in the past, it kind of depends who you talk to. Some people would say this is like the year A.D. 70. This is when the Roman Empire came and seized Jerusalem and some of the rulers of Rome, the Caesars, um, 
Some historians have pointed out there was 12, 12 men who held that title, but two were very weak. Um, some would point to the little horn and say this is Antiochus from the time between the two uh, testaments. Some would point to this and say that the Roman Empire will be revived one day in the future. And there will be a confederacy and an antichrist is going to rise up. And this will be the little horn. He'll speak great things. Regardless, I think an important thing to note here is that this little horn is given a time when he will prevail over the saints. It says here, the horn made war with the saints and he prevailed over them. Are we surprised that for a season God allows evil to win? As we look at history and look at the world around us, are we surprised that Satan gets a season? And sometimes I think I am. I think myself, I feel like my life should be good. If God is my God, why is life not easy? Why is it hard? And I'm glad it was brought up this morning during breaking of bread that, yeah, life sometimes is not meant to be easy. And we are living among wolves. And there's an adversary who is out to do us harm. And for some reason, God gives evil a season. It makes me think about the book of Job. That for a season, there was things going on behind the scene. And Job didn't know it. And life was difficult. But there's only for a season. God gives him a time. So thus he said to the fourth, fourth beast, verse 23, There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That phrase is very interesting. A time would be a year. Times would be two years. Half a time, half a year. So we're looking at about, what, three and a half years, if I do my math? And if I was looking at my months, my calendar, in three and a half years, how many months would go by? It would be 42 months. And if you look in the book of Revelation, 42 months are given to the Antichrist. So it just kind of makes some connections here. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So clearly this whole vision is very upsetting to Daniel. Enough so that he became pale 
but he kept it to himself and he wrote it down. I think all these years later, here we have it. And the big question is, what do we do with it? I don't know I have any secret message for world politics, any predictions to make, but I do have some thoughts for us, how we ought to respond. The first one I want to note is, we need to rest in the fact that God has a plan for the future. As we look at the rise and the fall of nations, and in particular for those in the area of Israel, Daniel's nation, his people, God has a plan and a purpose. And we need to rest in that plan and that purpose. I think sometimes we read the news, we see world events, and there's a tendency or a desire to want to see ourselves in world events in the news. You know, Russia invent, invades Ukraine. You know, what is this? Is this the Antichrist? Is Putin the Antichrist? Is this the beast? Is Ukraine one of the three horns that gets uprooted? And I don't know. Like, I don't have an answer. And maybe it's a little bit cloudy because we're not meant to look forward to know. But we can look back and see, okay, now I see, Lord, you had a plan. I think we have a desire to be comfortable we want to know what happens so we can manipulate things to our own advantage. I think we've become very comfortable as a nation. we become very comfortable as a church. And the thought of suffering, it kind of makes us uncomfortable. The idea that something might come up that causes me discomfort in my life, and, hmm, I would really rather not. If I could hedge myself to avoid persecution, to avoid trouble. I would do it in a heartbeat. And I would guess you would too. But I don't think what we find here is secret knowledge for how to beat the system. I think what we find here is encouragement to rest in the fact that God is in control. That his kingdom, his dominion is everlasting. And yes, we are going to see nations rise against nation. We're going to see Kingdoms rise and fall, but we can rest in the fact that the Lord is doing things behind the scene that we don't see. I was really encouraged last week to think about Daniel, and he was, by our standards, he had lived a long life, a life of faithfulness, of steady faithfulness over many years, and I appreciate all the saints here in this room who have lived lives of quiet faithfulness over the years. Because I can look forward and say that is how we do it. It's not always being loud and noisy and doing flashy things. Daniel was faithful in the place where he was put. He was living in a foreign court with pagan kings and he had faithfulness year after year. He served the Lord. And I think that's a call for us to see that God has an end purpose in all these things. And our job is to be faithful. And to consider God's glory in the light of current events. You know, the beasts, they come up out of the sea. And it's a frightening thing. 
And as God, from God's point of view, these nations devour one another. But the vision to take away is a vision of the ancient of days, the judge who does righteously, to see the Son of Man in his glory. And suddenly these other things don't look so big. They don't look so frightening because God is in control of history. He's in control of nations. And he certainly has a plan for his church. So I'm going to go ahead and close on that. Um, I'll pray. Then we'll sing some songs. So Father, I just want to thank you just um, that we can rest on who you are. We can know that you are over history. And as we see um, just your knowledge, your wisdom in the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, we can trust that you ultimately are the Ancient of Days. Lord, you are the Son of Man, who, is, although one who had glory, he veiled that glory to come in humility. And for that, we, uh, we thank you and we love you for it. And we just pray that we have hearts this week that rest, rest in your sovereignty. And so we praise in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.